The books of Kings are a lot like an eastward drive out of Denver, Colorado. Now, Denver, as you know, is known as the Mile High City. And it's on this kind of plateau that's 5,500 feet, one mile, above sea level. But the city, the area itself is kind of flat. If you kind of just land in Denver, you wouldn't really know what elevation you're at. In fact, you'd probably think you were at a lower elevation because the Rocky Mountains are kind of right behind you to the west. But you're really up on this elevated plateau. But if you were to drive east from there, uh, you would quickly begin to descend as you moved toward the, the Great Plains in the middle part of the country. And it wouldn't take long. By the time you'd get to St. Louis, uh, you would already be at, at only about 450 feet above sea level. And so you start on this high plateau, and then you descend real quickly, and you get real low, real close to the bottom. And that's really the, the, the summation of what happens to the nation of Israel spiritually uh, throughout the time of the kings. The high plateau was the reign of Solomon. And thus we were given 11 chapters out of 1 Kings that really talked about the glory of Solomon's kingdom, the apex of Israel's existence and all that they enjoyed. Um, really, he got about 25% of the whole narrative of First and Second Kings. If you divide the whole thing out, that's a, a great chunk. So you get this real high plateau that they start out on. And then chapters 12 through 14 which we started last week and we'll, you know, we'll start with 14 tonight, is really just the reign of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Those are the two kings that were successors to Solomon. And the reason why they get three chapters between the two of them is because the kingdom divided. After Solomon's reign, we read last week, Rehoboam made a foolish move. And uh, the, the outcome of that foolish move is that 10 tribes of the 12 tribes said, we are not playing. And we're going to take our own king and go home. And they made themselves a king, Jeroboam. And Rehoboam stayed as the, the, the son of Solomon in the south. And, and the reason they get three chapters is because here the kingdom divides. And so God gives us the background and, and really what uh, caused that to happen. But now from here, now that those two kingdoms have split, now we, we get the descent. And, and really what we get from here is we get very short excerpts about a lot of kings, we go through many years very quickly and we just see this descent. And some of the kings get more pressed than others depending on what they did and how it applies to our lives and what God uh, wanted in his word. Uh, we're going to hit the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, which really make up the bulk, the, the majority of First and Second Kings. We'll hopefully get to that uh, next week, Lord willing. Um, but, but we begin this slide now as we begin to look at these kings. And I gave you that handout so that you'd be able to just kind of see it in your mind. And here's something... Uh, worth noting here at the onset of our study. The way God laid this out in the word is that he didn't say, these are all the kings of Judah and then list them off one by one. And these are all the kings of Israel, the northern tribes, one by one. He does it interchangeably because he's doing it in succession. So he'll say, Asa ruled over Judah. And it'll talk about Asa. But then it'll backtrack and say, and while Asa was in Judah... Jeroboam finished out here, and then Jeroboam this one, and, and it kind of goes in order. So we're going to jump back and forth between the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, and it can almost be a little bit confusing if you don't uh, tune in and, and kind of pay attention and look at what you're reading about. But here's, uh, here's what you've got to understand. The kings of Judah, they were the descendants of David. God made a promise to David that you'll always have someone on the throne, uh, and, and you will all the way through. The kings of Israel are the split, the ten tribes to the north. So Israel, the northern kingdoms, Judah, the southern kingdom, the descendants of David. Israel has no good kings. There's not one that we'll read of in the whole bunch that's a good king. Judah will have a mix. Some will be good kings and some will be bad kings. Uh, so, so pay attention uh, in that. Now tonight, I hope to cover three chapters. And we're going to cover about 10 kings, and it's going to be a span of about 50 or 60 years. And if we succeed, and we must succeed, we'll land at the the beginning of the ministry of Elijah the prophet, who then becomes the central character for the rest of the book. So if tonight, for any reason, and I'm not anticipating this, but if for any reason tonight you say, this is insane, and I can't understand a word you're saying, it's just one night. 
Next week when we get into Elijah, it's a totally different tone, style, and all that. But there's so much here, so I'm not anticipating that you're going to say that. I know that God has something um, to say to us. Now, just like a trip east from Denver hopefully has a destination, so also does the history of Israel. What they're heading towards in this rapid descent is a period of time biblically that's known as the captivity. God said through Moses to the people hundreds of years before this, that once they came into the promised land, that if they followed him, obeyed him, and you know, stayed true to what he said, that he would continue to prosper, elevate, and bless them. But if they would turn from him and turn to idols and forsake God, then they would be taken from the land. They would lose the possession of the promised land that God had given them. Moses warned them of that. That's what's going to happen. After 300 years of God dealing with these kings and warning them and reaching out to them in highs and lows, revivals and backslidings, eventually they're going to go into captivity at the end. So where we are in that whole thing is that we have now departed from Denver and we're heading down quickly towards the Mississippi uh, as, as we pick up tonight in our text. So chapter 14, we get the conclusion of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Uh, Jeroboam, the first king of the northern ten tribes, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who is the king of Judah. And we begin um, with Jeroboam here in verse 1. It says, at that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. So he has a son, Jeroboam does, his name is Abijah. He's going to apparently be the heir apparent to the throne, but he gets sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, arise, I pray thee, and disguise thyself, that you be not known to be the wife of Jeroboam. So put, on, put off your royal clothes, put on common clothes, and get to Shiloh, and behold, there is Ahijah the prophet, which told me that I should be king over this people. And take with thee ten loaves and cracknels and a cruise of honey, and go to him, and he shall tell thee what shall become of the child. And Jeroboam's wife did so, and she arose, and she went to Shiloh, and she came to the house of Ahijah, but Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were set by reason of his age. So he's now physically blind. His eyes have failed him. And the Lord said unto Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam comes to ask thee a thing of thee for her son, for he is sick. And thus and thus shalt thou say unto her, for it shall be that when she comes in, that she shall feign herself or fake herself to be another woman. And it was so that when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, that he said, Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. Why feignest thou or pretend to be uh, yourself to be another? For I am sent to you with heavy tidings. So she comes to him, but God says, I am sent to you to give this. Now, in this, right off the bat, what I see in Jeroboam are the marks of a spiritual phony. You'll recall from our study last week that Jeroboam kind of made himself the spiritual guru of the northern ten tribes. He was afraid that the people would leave him and go back to Rehoboam if they went down to Jerusalem to worship as God had commanded. So he made two golden calves, and he ordained a feast that was like the feast that they kept in Jerusalem. And he made a whole network of high places that was filled with idols and shrines to pagan deities. And he told the people, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Stay here and worship. And he started this whole false religious system that will be the predominant religious system of the northern tribes all the way through until the captivity. But it's a false religious system. He was a guru, but he was a false guru. He was a prophet, but he was a false prophet over a false religious system. And so what I see in this is the marks of a spiritual phony. When you see someone who is putting forth that they're spiritually sincere, but in fact they have not the truth of God, what are the marks? And I see first of all in this man that he doesn't want anyone to know that life isn't working out or that his God isn't able to help him. He says, disguise yourself to his wife and make sure that no one knows that you're the wife of Jeroboam. One of the biggest problems with false religion or a false belief is that it doesn't work. In Psalm chapter 115, the psalmist describes those that make idols and then worship them. And he says that they have hands, but they can't touch. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have mouths, but they can't speak. And they have ears, but they can't hear. And then he says, they that make them are like them. 
And the whole idea behind that false idol is that it has a facade as though it can help, as though it can hear, as though it can speak, as though it can see. But in actuality, it's as dead as the thing that it's made out of. It has no ability to do anything. So since it cannot help, they that make them have to become like them. And that is, those people have to also put on a facade. Those that serve a false god have to pretend like everything in their life is going well and that their god or their false religious system is actually working out for them when in fact it isn't. Thus, if you don't fake it, then everyone will know that your belief or your system is false. Now listen, for you and I, we serve the God of the Bible. And God doesn't promise to us at any time that everything is always going to work out for us. That our sons and daughters are never going to be sick, that we're never going to have problems, that we're never going to have bills that we can't pay or health issues. God never promises us that we're going to have it all easy. He says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, And the sun shines on the just and the unjust. And either of those things, rain or sun, can be either good or bad, depending on where you are. And so God says these things happen to people. But here's what God doesn't ever ask of us. He never asks us to pretend for the sake of his reputation that everything is just okay. To put on a facade. But what he does promise with that is that if we ask, he will help us. Call on me, God says, in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. I will answer you. Call unto me, and I will show you things that you know not. He promises that he'll be involved in our lives, and that he'll intervene in the circumstances and the situations that we're in. And in fact, the very problems that we face in our lives are oftentimes designed by God so that we'll see his hand working in our lives, and so also those that are around us will see the hand of God working within our lives. See, someone who serves a false god doesn't have the hand of any god or any power working in their lives, and therefore they have to hide their problems from the world. And that's what Jeroboam does here. The other thing that a spiritual phony um, will do, and, and this is common, and Jeroboam does it here, is that they believe that God can't see what man can't see. Or that if they can fool man, they must be also fooling God. He's going to a prophet of God to inquire of the true and the living God, but he thinks he can trick the prophet of God who's going to speak for God into not knowing who he is. Well, if I can deceive the prophet, then I can deceive God too. I can get an answer to my prayer, but without God really knowing who I am or what's going on in my life. There's many people that live godless lives in secret, but they've learned to wear a cloak of morality in public. And what people see on the outside of their lives is all good, as though they were righteous, holy people. And they think that because they're deceiving people into thinking they're good people, that therefore they're okay with God. Is that all that matters is what man sees, and as long as man doesn't know what's going on in my life behind closed doors, then that means God doesn't know what's going on in my life behind closed doors. Not so. Psalm chapter 50, verses uh, 15 and onward, the psalmist David, he declares, or Asaph, he says, and he says, call upon me, speaking for the Lord, in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But unto the wicked, God saith, what hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that you should take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction, and you cast my word behind you? When you saw a thief, then you consented with him. And you've been a partaker with adulterers. You've given your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander thine own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silence. You thought that I was altogether such a one like yourself. But I will prove you and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, you that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifies me. And to him that orders his lifestyle, not his appearance, but what he actually is, aright, I will show the salvation of God. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, when uh, the prophet Samuel was sent to the house of uh, Jesse to anoint David the king. As Jesse, I'm sorry, as Samuel saw the sons of Jesse, he saw the tallest one and thought, surely this is the king. And God rebuked him. And he said, do not look at the height of his count or stature or the, 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 the brightness of his countenance. For the, I have refused him. The Lord doesn't see like a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. 
And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There are many that profess to be godly or to think that they're accepted by God, but they live and behave contrary to a godly life. But God sees even the thoughts and the motivations of the heart. He sees all things. And you cannot hide what you truly are from God. And so he, this man is a spiritual phony. Well, here comes the prophecy from Ahijah uh, to Jeroboam and, and concerning his son. He says in verse 7, he says, Go tell Jeroboam, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. For as much as I exalted thee from among the people and made thee prince over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do that only which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all that were before you. For you have gone and made you other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind thy back. Therefore, behold, I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male and him that is shut up and left in Israel and will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as a man taketh away dung till it be all gone. Now that's pretty descriptive language of what God thinks of the house of Jeroboam. You think you're moral, you think you're righteous, but what I see is I see a land that's been defiled by dung and it will be removed. Him that dies of Jeroboam in the city shall the dogs eat and him that dies in the field shall the fowls of the air eat for the Lord has spoken it. Arise therefore and get to your own house and when your feet enter into the city, the child, that's the child that's sick, shall die. Now watch this, verse 13. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found some good thing toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Now, this is an amazing scripture to me. First, God says to, to this woman to bring a message back to her king husband that he was given the potential of being as King David was. That's what God said to Jeroboam. He said, if you'll just follow me and walk in my ways, I will do for you what I promised to do for David. That's an amazing promise. But God says he cast me behind his back and he served false gods and made molten images and caused the people to turn. And therefore, that will be his demise. And here will be the sentence now is that the child will die. And God says, here's the reason the child's going to die. Because there's some good that's found in him. Now we say, wait a minute. If there's some good that's found in the child, then why is it that the child has to die? Did you know that sometimes death can be a mercy? Especially as the people of God, I think it's important for us to look at death differently than the world looks at death. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, and he said this. He said, uh, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. What he means by that is death. He's not talking about those that are taking a nap. He says that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. In other words, for the child of God, death is not done. Death is a door. When you and I as Christians, believers, blood-bought, forgiven of our sins, when we die, we don't cease to exist or go into a place of torment or a place of even the grave. But the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so for you and I to die is to leave this wretched world behind and enter into glory, into the very existence that we were created for. Now God sees some element of faith, and we don't know what that faith looked like, but God says there's some good in this child, and therefore I'm going to spare him the destiny that he would have if he were to continue living, and I'm going to take him home now. And that was a, 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 a move of mercy on behalf of God and not a move of wrath or anger. I'm going to take him so that he doesn't get eaten by dogs or birds. That's what God said. He'll get a proper burial and Israel will mourn for him because there's some goodness that's found in him. I was having a conversation um, with a family member recently and we were talking about uh, end times and the things that are coming upon the earth and we we're talking about the rapture and heaven and this whole thing. And after a, a while, uh, this person said to me, they said, what is it about your life that you don't like? That you're so eager that you want to go to heaven. 
you know, and, and, I, and I laughed a little bit. I smiled, you know, and, I, and that's an honest question. Like, I can understand where that was coming from. And, and what I said was, I said, I think that most people would trade places with me. I love my life in, in the biblical proper context. I know Jesus said, if you love your life, you know, that's not a good thing. But, but he was talking about, uh, you, you know, loving your life apart from God. I love my life in the Lord. I wouldn't trade it for anything in, in terms of a worldly existence. But I wouldn't trade heaven to have my life. I mean, we're talking about heaven. You know, and, and I understand what that is according to the biblical description of it and, and, and what it means in a new body and to ever be with the Lord and, and, and all the rest. And, and so I said, I said, you know, it would be like if someone was a slave in a third world country and they had it good as a slave in a third world country. They weren't being beaten. You know, they weren't being uh, oppressed over much, you know, and, and they, as good as a slave could ever have it in a third world country, this person has it. But then they have an opportunity to come to a free country and to live free and to live in a palace and live in royalty within that uh, new society. What slave in any country, no matter how good they have it, wouldn't say, sign me up, I'm in. We're going to heaven. And so death for you and me isn't the kind of thing that we despair of or fear. For you and I, it's a going home party. And so it's a mercy here that this, uh, this guy would, would die. Um, so anyways, the fulfillment, verse 14, it says, Moreover, the Lord shall raise him up a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam um, that day, but what even now? For the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he shall root up Israel out of this good land which he gave to their fathers, and shall scatter them beyond the river. So he's speaking of the captivity that I spoke of earlier, when they would be carried off of their land because of disobedience. He says they're going to be carried beyond the river because they have made their groves provoking the Lord to anger. And he shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, who did sin and who made Israel to sin. And Jeroboam's wife arose, and she departed, and she came to Terzah. And when she came to the threshold of the door... The child died. And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the hand of his servant, Ahijah uh, the prophet. And the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Now, that's a book we do not have. We do not have the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. We do have the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. That's First and Second Chronicles in our Bible. But we don't have the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And thus, uh, what he's speaking of here, we don't have it. And the days which Jeroboam reigned were two and twenty years, twenty-two years. And he slept with his fathers. And Nadab, his son, now reigned in his stead. So if you look at your sheet, you'll see that under Jeroboam, uh, under the column of the Kings of Israel, you'll see Nadab, his son, uh, that ruled after him. Now in verse 21, we shift back to the kingdom of Judah. So Jeroboam was Israel. Now, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, that's what the narrator would say at this point. Verse 21, it says, And Rehoboam now, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. And Rehoboam was 40 and one years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. The city which the Lord did choose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah an Ammonitess. Now, between verse 21 and verse 22 in your Bible, if you're a Bible writer, you could draw a little line somewhere between those two verses. Um, and, and what's not given to us here, but that is given to us over in Chronicles, is that there's a five-year period of time that's omitted uh, in Kings that we have in Chronicles. And the reason I bring that up to you is because it tells us in Chronicles that for the first three years of Rehoboam's reign, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That aside from the folly, I almost said stupidity, but I thought that's not really appropriate in church, so I didn't say stupidity uh, for him. But, but the folly of Rehoboam um, that we read about last week, but aside from that, he, he trusted the Lord, he followed the Lord for the first three years while he was being established. But once he was strong and he realized that he wasn't going to lose control of the kingdom, then he turned his back on the Lord and he began to go the way uh, of all of the idolatrous uh, things that were going on in the rest of the nation. And then God gave him two years of grace. 
So three years he followed the Lord, turned his back, and then God waited two years, gave him two years to see what would happen. And then what we pick up with now in verse 22 is what happens at year five. So in the fifth year, verse 22, it says that Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. For they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also sodomites or male prostitutes in the land. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord did cast out before uh, Israel. And so um, then verse 25, after uh, that the evil and the five years go by, it says, it came to pass in the fifth year of the king of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He even took away all, and he took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So after five years now of Rehoboam's reign, God brings judgment upon the, the southern tribe. And he brings the king of Egypt in with a great multitude. He came with Ethiopians. He came with a, a, you know, an overwhelming host. Uh, and, and he comes in. He ransacks Jerusalem. Josephus says Rehoboam laid down without a fight. He didn't even try to resist. That's how, uh, how, how forceful Egypt came in. He takes all the shields of gold that Solomon had made that we learned of uh, a couple of weeks ago. But there's another gap between verse 26 and verse 27, and it tells us in Chronicles that Rehoboam and Israel humbled themselves before the Lord at this point when this happened, and thus God kind of subsided the storm that Egypt brought. Egypt spoiled their treasures, but then left them as sovereign. So Egypt didn't take over, they just kind of took the spoils and ran, so to speak, and God gave them um, back their place in in this, but they became um, taxed by them. And so verse 27, it says, So King Rehoboam made in place of those gold shields brazen shields, brass shields, and he committed them unto the hands of the chief of the guard which kept the door of the king's house. And it was so that when the king went into the house of the Lord, that the guard bare them, and brought them back into the guard chamber. So he doesn't hang these shields on the wall, but he keeps them in a locked closet. And when the king comes in, he gets them all out, and he polishes them off, and he puts them up on the wall, and the king comes in, and he sees the splendor, and then the king leaves, he takes them down again, puts them back in the closet to protect them, you know. And now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. The southern and the northern kingdoms were at civil war. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus and Abijam, uh, his son, reigned in his head. So the question that I ask as I look at all of this is, why does the Holy Spirit leave out the two maybe shreds of light that we could see in Rehoboam's life at this point? The fact that he started his reign good following the Lord for three years, and also the fact that he humbled himself when Shishak, the king of Egypt, came. Why is it not listed here, uh, and God puts it in Kings this way? And I think the, the, the application for you and me is this, is that fruit that remains in our lives is more important than fruit that exists. Jesus said in John chapter 15, one of the last things that he said before going to the cross, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And most of us are familiar with that passage of scripture. And he said that if we abide in him and his words abide in us, he said, we will bear much fruit. We will lead fruitful lives. And he said in verse 8, he said, herein is my father glorified, how we bring God glory, is that if we bear much fruit. He wants us to lead fruitful lives. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. His desire is that we lead fruitful, abundant lives. In verse 16 of the same chapter, Jesus said that the Father's will for us is not just that we would bear much fruit, but he also says that our fruit would remain. And that is that we wouldn't just bear fruit in certain seasons of our lives, but that we would bear lasting fruit, and that it would endure all the way to the end. There were small glimpses of fruit in Rehoboam's life, but the fruit didn't remain, it didn't last. He turned his back on God once he was strong, and he humbled himself, but then he continued in evil, and whatever fruit was there vanished, and whatever future fruit he might have borne never came to be. And by omitting those passages here in Kings, I believe the Lord's saying, hey, his net was zero. 
For a season, there might have been some fruit, but in the long run, in the end, he bore absolutely nothing. Every few weeks, we hear uh, in Christian circles of new pastors that have fallen or or that have been taken off the field because of scandal or different things uh, that have gone on. And that's just kind of, um, you know, if you're an electrician, you pay attention to electricians. If you're a finance guy, you you pay attention to finance people. Pastors, we pay attention to ministries and what's going on in the kingdom of God. And so we hear it all. We hear all the falls, all the adultery, all the financial scandals. We hear about all the power struggles and all the corruption that's going on in the body of Christ. And our heart breaks over it. And this is the thing that keeps coming to me in these days, is that it isn't about the fruit that exists. It's about the fruit that remains. That's what matters to God. It's what matters to heaven. And Rehoboam uh, is a person, he is an example to us of a person that uses God to get up but then forsakes him once they're standing, and thus any fruit that was or could have been vanishes. And that's an example that we should learn from, not what to do, but what not to do. And so verse 31, it concludes telling us again that his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess. This is told us three times in Scripture, twice in Kings and once in Chronicles. Now, no one else is, is, is told that their, their mother's name. This is not like a credential for kings, uh, that God just always tells us the name of the mom. But three times in the scripture, uh, the Spirit tells us that Rehoboam's mother was this Ammonitess woman. Why is that? And I, I don't know. But I want to give it my best shot. Solomon should never have married an Ammonitess to begin with. That was... Uh, a command that was given, that they weren't to intermarry with the people of the land. He did that in violation to the will of God. And thus, Rehoboam technically should never have existed at all. That's strike one. Strike two is that with a thousand wives and concubines, Solomon had to have a legitimate son who was of Israeli stock that could have been heir apparent to the throne. There was certainly somebody more qualified than Rehoboam to take that place But Rehoboam was given that place, even though he didn't deserve it. That's strike two. So being that he was born of a woman he shouldn't have been born of, and given a position he shouldn't have been given, he should have approached the opportunity to serve in that capacity with much more reverence and appreciation than he did. He was given much grace, and he trampled it. He took an opportunity to be great as an outsider, and he stepped on it. That's strike three. And I believe that's why God just brings this to our attention uh, three times in this. So chapter 15, three kings in this chapter, uh, two kings of Judah, one king of Israel. But the chapter really centers around um, Asa that we'll get to. So verse 1, it says, Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, reigned Abijam over uh, Judah. Three years he reigned in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Absalom. Now that's gross because this is his aunt. He married Aunt Maaka. And if you do a little bit of math, you'll figure out she's got to be somewhere between 65 and 85 years old at the time this guy uh, marries her, which was old in those days. Um, interesting situation. But anyways, it says that he walked in all the sins of his father. So this is Rehoboam's son. Uh, And he's walking in the sins of Rehoboam, which he had done before him. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, did the Lord his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. And then Asa, his son, reigned in his stead. So here we have another bad king. Uh, We have a a documentation of his reign, who his mother was. We're told that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, that he had constant conflict with Jeroboam, who was the king of uh, Israel at that time, the northern tribes. And then we're told that he died. He is a wasted life. He did nothing. He accomplished nothing. And thus we move on to his son, Asa, verse 9. And it says, And in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, reigned Asa over Judah. And 41 years he reigned in Jerusalem, 
And his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Absalom. So uh, his mother is the woman that was spoken of back over in verse 2 that married um, Ahijah, uh, or I'm sorry, Ahijam, Abijam. There's so many Ahais, right? I mean, come on. I think the Lord, this is like an IQ test. There's going to be a test at the end. Can you get all these names straight? If you get the application straight, you're doing okay. It says that Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David, his father. One of the lessons that we learn from Asa right off the bat at the very beginning of the testimony that's given concerning him is that it's possible to lead a godly life even when your fathers and grandfathers didn't. And I think that's an important thing for us to consider. I think many people in our world are enabled to make stupid choices and to lead unholy lives, and they blame it upon the behavior of their parents and their grandparents. Well, I'm this way, or I have this tendency, or I have this habit because of someone in a previous generation that behaved this way, and therefore I am stuck in this lifestyle, and I cannot get free of it. In Ezekiel chapter 18, God says, I never want to hear this proverb again, that because our fathers ate sour grapes, therefore our teeth are set on edge or are rotting away. He says, I don't want to hear that anymore. He says, all souls are mine, and the soul that sins, it shall die. And if a man is unrighteous, but he has a righteous son, then I'm not going to judge the righteous son for the sins of his father. And if that righteous son has an ungodly son, I'm not going to make him righteous for the sake of his righteous father. Everyone makes decisions for themselves. And the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of God's Holy Spirit that he's given to us breaks us free from everything that we are in the natural. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, that old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And there's no reason that any of us have to say, well, I cannot lead a godly life because it's not in my heritage to lead a godly life. The cross, the blood, and the Spirit enable every one of us to make a choice of whether or not we want to follow God, and He will honor that choice that He's made. I come from generations and lines of people that are not godly people. But I know what God's been able to do in my life and set me free from the track that that lifestyle and that uh, heritage would have left me in the natural. And he's put me on a completely different track. And that's what the Spirit of God does. And we see Asa here, uh, a demonstration of that as he breaks off of the chain of ungodliness and he chooses to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, between verses 11 and 12, you could write, uh, uh, draw another line in there um, because there's 10 years of peace that start out the reign of Asa. He starts out on the right track and God starts him out with blessing. Ten years of peace. There's no conflict. There's no problems, we're told. But then, after ten years, we're told that the king of Ethiopia, Zerah by name, came with an army of one million men and he besieged Judah. And when Asa, who only had an army of 280,000 men, saw that he was so outnumbered that he didn't have a chance. The Bible says that he fell on his face before the Lord and he uttered uh, this famous prayer that many of us quote, but we don't even know where it came from. It says in 2 Chronicles 14, 11, that Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with you to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we will go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. And he humbled himself. He depended upon God, and the Bible says that God intervened, and God destroyed the invading army of the Ethiopians and sent them packing. But after that, a prophet came to Asa and warned him, and said, capitalize on this victory. Go through the land and destroy the idols and make, uh, make, take up some territory back for God. And thus, he does it. Verse 12, back in Kings. It says, he took away the sodomites or the male prostitutes out of the land. And he removed all the idols that his fathers had made. And also, Maacah, his mother, even her, the queen mother, he removed from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove, and Asa destroyed her idol and burnt it by the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. And he brought in the things which his father had dedicated and the things which himself had dedicated into the house of the Lord, silver and gold and vessels. Now, 
uh, he, he, he eliminates uh, the, 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 the idolatry, the prostitution from the land in this whole thing. And now we have another gap of time between verses 15 and verse 16. We're told in Chronicles that there was a long period of rest. Conflict with the king of Israel between the north and the south, as always. But there was a great period of rest for many years now in Asa's reign after this victory over the Ethiopians. But then, after that now, here comes Baasha, verse 16. It says, And there was war between Asa and Baasha, the king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, the king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah that he might not suffer or allow any to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. He cuts off the trade route. And he stops resources from flowing in and out of Judah in an attempt to weaken Asa in his reign. And so how does Asa respond now to this front that's made by Baasha? Verse 18. It says, Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and he delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tibermon, in the, in the, uh, the son of Hezion, the king of Syria that dwelt at Damascus, saying, there is a league between me and you, or a covenant, a pact, a treaty, and between my father and thy father. Behold, I have sent unto thee a present of silver and of gold. Come and break your league or your treater with Baasha, the king of Israel, that he may depart from me. So Ben-Hadad hearkened unto King Asa and sent the captains of the host, which he had against the cities of Israel. And he smote Ijon and Dan and Abel Beth Malach. You try it. And all Chinnereth and all the land of Naphtali. And it came to pass when Baasha heard thereof that he left off building of Ramah and he dwelt in Terza. So King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted, but they took away the stones from Ramah and the timber thereof, wherewith Baasha had builded. And King Asa built with them Geba of Benjamin uh, and Mizpah. So here's what happens now at this thing. Baasha, the king of the north, comes down, he cuts off the trade route, and, and basically seeks to choke out Asa in his reign. How is Asa going to respond now to this uh, new front? Years previously, when Ethiopia had come in, he fell on his face before the Lord and he saw a miraculous deliverance. But now, he has some money. He has some resources. He's got some options. And so he takes his money, his resources, and he hires the king of Syria to break his treaty with Baasha and, in fact, to fight against him. And it works. And so he finds this uh, bit of respite in the thing. But what we're not told here in the, in the thing is that God sent a prophet, Hanani, uh, after this whole thing happened in Second Chronicles chapter 16 in the whole thing. And here's what Hanani said to Asa because Asa did this. It says, at that time, Hanani, the seer, the prophet, came to Asa, the king of Judah, and he said unto him, because you have relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God. Therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you did rely on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein you have done foolishly, Therefore, from henceforth, you shall have wars. Now watch the response of Asa, verse 10. Then Asa was wroth with the seer, and he put him in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing, and Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. And behold, the acts of Asa, the first and the last, though they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and in Israel. And then um, if you read on in Chronicles, or here in verse, I'm sorry, Kings, verse 23, it says that the rest of the acts of Asa and all his might and that which he did and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Nevertheless, in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his stead. Second Chronicles says this about Asa's sickness. 
16.12, it says, And Asa in the 39th year of his reign was diseased in his feet, until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. And the implication in the text here is that the reason why he died of the disease that he did is because he didn't seek the Lord in this thing. So Asa was a good king. But here's the lesson uh, that Asa's life gives to you and me concerning uh, the Christian life or the, 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 the godly life in any just generation. And that's this. Beware that having begun in the spirit, you are not now made perfect in the flesh. Philippians 1.6, the Apostle Paul said that he who began a good work in you, that he will be careful or faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What can happen to us in our lives is that God lifts us up. He gets us up. But then we can become strong. And we have some resources. And we have some options. And we can stop leaning on the Lord at a certain point in our life. And we can start to come up with uh, solutions to our problems or trust in our resources uh, ourselves. There are two types of problems in life. There are front side uh, of life problems and there are back side of life problems. Front side of life problems are like, what am I going to do with my life? Where am I going to go to school? Where am I going to find a spouse? Where will I live or buy, how will I buy a house? How do you raise a family? How do you survive in this world? Those are front side of life problems that you face, you know, uh, late teens, early 20s, into your 30s, these days into your 50s and 60s, you know, front side of life problems, you know, figuring out what you're going to do with your life. And oftentimes, people on the front side of life, especially Christians in that, in that place, have no other choice but to lean upon the Lord. And so, God, how are you going to do this in my life? How is this going to work out? And they trust in the Lord, and God brings them through. He leads them on a path. He gives them direction. He gives them a spouse. He raises up for them. They, they buy a house. They get their feet on the ground. They have some kids, and life is humming. God lifts them up into that place. But then some time goes by. And they have a little bit of success. And in the Christian life, you're going to have a little bit of success if you continue to walk with the Lord. And you're probably going to have a little bit of prosperity. Not, I'm not talking like palace and Rolls Royce prosperity, but I mean just the fact that you're leading a godly life. You're, you're not going to be gambling or drugging your money away. You know? So you're going to have some, something to work with. But then you come a little bit later on and you have the backside of life problems. And a new, whole new set of things, Baasha comes down from inside. And all of a sudden, a new set of problems. Well, where am I going to retire? How am I going to retire? How are my kids or grandkids going to survive? Well, how will I take care of them? Or what will I leave them? What about the health issues that I'm facing here in these later days of my life? How will I deal with health issues? How do I deal with the death of a spouse or the death of my friends, the people that are my contemporaries that are starting to, to die? What will my legacy be? And what am I going to leave behind this world? What will my, 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 my uh, contribution be that I've, I've made in this world? And all of a sudden, you have a new set of problems. What the tendency can be for Christians is that, well, I depended on God on the front side of my life, but now on the back side of my life, I've got options. Well, I've got a 401k. I've got a retirement plan. I've got a health care plan. I live in the United States of America. I put my kids through college. And all of a sudden, instead of leaning upon the Lord to be the author and the finisher of our faith, he became the author, but we become the finishers of it. And the worst thing that happened in Asa's life is that his plan worked. It was successful. His objective was accomplished. The king of Syria bought into the plan, and Baasha was sent home. It worked. The problem was, it wasn't what God wanted for Asa or for his people in Syria. And though he succeeded in solving the problem in the short term, he caused a bigger problem in the long term by strengthening the king of Syria. And as the narrative progresses, Ben-Hadad is going to become a constant threat and problem, and Ace is the one that set it up to be so. So what's the takeaway for you and me? Is that it isn't enough just to trust God with some things in our lives, but we're called to trust God with all things in our lives. It isn't just that we, that we solve a problem, that matters. It's how we solve the problem that matters to God. That's what makes the difference in all of it. Jesus told the story of a man who had a demon cast out of him. That's a problem. If you have a demon, you've got a problem. But Jesus said that there's a wrong way to have that demon cast out. Now, he doesn't tell us what that wrong way is, but we know spiritually that if a demon is cast out but not replaced by the presence of the Spirit of God in a life, 
then even if a demon was cast out, Jesus said that the, word, the latter end is going to be worse because seven more demons, even worse than the first one, are going to come in and, 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 and ransack that house because it's been swept and cleaned, but it hasn't been sealed properly. So if your life gets cleaned up, but your life isn't cleaned up the right way, Jesus says your latter end can be worse than it was in the beginning. And for the problems that we face in our life, if we solve them with our own resources or with our own intelligence, and not by leaning upon the hand of God and allowing Him to navigate us through those things, we can end up in a worse place later than we would have been otherwise. That's what's going to happen here. What problem are you facing tonight? You have money problems? Are there people problems? Are there family problems? Are there health problems in your life? Here's my counsel to you. Go to God and consult with Him. And say, God, these are the things going on in my life. How do you want to solve these problems? Can't go wrong there. Asa doesn't do that. And thus, the end of his story is not as good as the beginning. Well, the chapter goes on. Remember I told you at the beginning of the study, we're going to get through uh, th three chapters tonight? Well, we are. Here's how. <laughs> I used to be an auctioneer. No, I'm just kidding. From here, we leave Asa... And we um, go back into the, um, the, the, king of, the kingdoms of Israel. And we read about Nadab, who's the son of Jeroboam. He reigns for two years and he's evil in the sight of the Lord. Then we read about Baasha, whom we heard a little about already, but we see how he came into power. He assassinates Nadab and all of the descendants of Jeroboam, thus fulfilling the prophecy of the prophet. He rules for 24 years and he does evil in the sight of the Lord. In chapter 16, we get five evil kings, all from Israel, none from Judah. Um, Baasha, 24 years, evil. He's visited by Jehu the prophet, the son of Hanani, who had prophesied to Asa, uh, told that he's done because of his pagan idolatry. He's succeeded by Elah, his son, who reigns for two years, and then he's assassinated. Zimri then, his servant, gets drunk, kills Elah and all the male descendants of Baasha, reigns for seven days, which when the people realize what he's done and how he uh, kind of usurped the kingdom, they put or Omri, the captain of the army, as king, and they come and besiege Zimri. Zimri realizes he's toast, so he lights the house on fire that he's in and kills himself uh, that way after seven days. Ormi, uh, Omri, sorry, rather than, uh, wins the kingdom. He reigns for 12 years, and then he gives birth to Ahab, uh, the final king that is listed there um, in, in uh, chapter 16. And we're going to read from verse 28 because we need to know who Ahab is because he's paramount for the study of Elijah. It says, verse 28 of chapter 16, So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. And in the 30 and 8th year of Asa, the king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel, that's in the north, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 20 and 2 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now that, God says, that's bad. That's like... Billy Graham marrying Miley Cyrus. <laughs> that's, that's the equivalent of how bad it is that, that, that Ahab takes Jezebel as a wife. And we're going to find uh, where she's going to keep rearing her head for a long time in the narrative. She's bad, real bad. Um, so he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. And in his days, and this is just a parenthetical side note, did Hiel, the Beth Bethelite, build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up the gates thereof, or completed it, in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. You recall that when Joshua and the Israelites encircled Jericho and the walls fell down and they, they spoiled the city and burnt it with fire, Joshua said, let this city never be built again. And if it is, then let the man who builds it lay the foundation of it in his firstborn uh, and then they established the gate in, in his youngest son. And that's exactly what happens in, in the Holy Spirit, just bringing it to our attention that it happened exactly uh, as he said. See, chapter 16, we did it. We made it through three chapters. Um, but, but there's a common phrase 
in chapter 16 that I believe um, is a word of application for you and I. Uh, it says five times in the chapter, but six times altogether if you include the end of chapter 15. Um, it says, in the blank year of Asa did blank king reign. Uh, 1525, it says, in the second year of Asa, he reigned over Israel two years. Then in um, 1533, in the third year of Asa began Baasha to reign. And then in 16 verse 8, in the 26th year of Asa, Elah began to reign. In verse 15, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri began to reign. In verse 23, it says, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Amri began to reign. And then in verse uh, 29, it says, and in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab to reign uh, over Israel. And I, I think there's something to that for you and I. And here's what it is. That if you make a decision with your life that you want to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, and you give yourself to a walk of obedience and faith as you just follow him in simplicity, then you're going to endure and you're going to watch kingdoms come and crash around you. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 19, it says, fret not thyself because of evil men, neither be envious at the wicked. For there shall be no reward to the evil man, and the candle of the wicked will be put out. I think sometimes we can get discouraged in our Christian walk when we see ungodly men prospering and doing well. Asaph in Psalm 73 says, My feet almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's no pain. There's no problem. There's no changes. There's no sudden you know, carpet being pulled out from under them. And he said it stumbled him. Why is my life so hard when I see the ungodly men prospering? And he says, I felt that way until I walked into the sanctuary of the Lord. And he says, I considered their end. For surely they are set in a slippery place. But I am set in a stable place. And that's what we see. We see Asa, a man who walked with God, who God even says his heart was perfect towards me, though he made mistakes. But he watched around him for 40 years. He watched rise and fall of many ungodly kings. But God kept him up. A common denominator in all that we studied tonight as we've looked at these 10 kings tonight is that God makes an assessment of each one's life. And it's a very simple assessment. They either did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord or they did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The New Testament church, God also makes an assessment of those that claim his name, that follow him. It's not the same, those that did what was right and those that was, did what was evil. Rather, it's those that trusted on me and those that denied me. And that's the way that God looks at our lives. And there's an assessment that God gives over every one of our lives. But for those of us that have put our faith in Christ, and we're on that right side of it, and God looks at our lives and he says, they made a decision for me, or they accepted my son, or they received the gift of my salvation. After that, it's possible for you and I to have a but, just like Asa, but he did not remove the high places from before him. Or like David, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. What does God see when he looks at your life? If you were to stand before him right now, what would his assessment be of you? You did what was right in my eyes. You accepted my son. But, and I think for every one of us, there's probably two or three things that would flash through our mind as we would consider, what does God see, the one who all things are naked and open before his eyes, when he looks at our lives? What is the but? We'll take this time as Lori comes, as the musicians come, to just let the Holy Spirit maybe draw those things, those areas of our life to our attention. Maybe there's some things that we want to destroy, some high places in our heart, some altars to Baal, perhaps a shrine, maybe a compromise, something in our lives where we've just said, God, I'll go this far, but no further. I'll destroy this, but I'm going to leave the high place. Or I'll leave that habit or I'll bury it in a secret closet. Or maybe there's an element of religion in us that just like Jeroboam, the phony spiritual man, we say, well, everything looks right in the eyes and in the realm of men. But in the eyes of God, can he see? He does see. Pray that God would give us the wisdom and the ability to see our lives as he sees them and to make an accurate assessment as he would to maybe put those things before him tonight. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word. 
And though this study is long, a little bit grueling, and tedious to follow, Lord, through the text, we hear the voice of your Spirit speaking to us. We know that your desire and your heart for us is that we would have an abundant life, that we would truly live. And so, Lord, tonight, in the eyes of our loving Father, who demonstrated his love in sending his Son to be the substitution for the punishment that we deserved, Lord, that your love would search us, that your desire, Lord, to fill and to move us, to so complete our lives that we might, like Asa, live full lives, restful lives, prospered lives. Oh, Lord, give us the wisdom to see into our heart as you see. and Give us the courage and the boldness to put a knife in those things, Lord, that need to die, that we might live only for you. So take this word, oh, Lord, Press it upon us. Let it come back to us later tonight and into tomorrow. Things that we've heard. Things that your spirit would speak. And that we might hear the words of our Savior. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.